Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For news about In Our Time and for recommendations about our archive, please follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoy the programmes. Hello. In Paris in 1839, the daguerreotype was announced to the world. Louis Daguerre had found a way to capture images that went through a lens onto a screen in a sealed box and to preserve those images for others to see in another place and at another time. This was the dawn of photography. Daguerre's was a great feat of chemistry, technology and showmanship and drew on years of experiment with camera obscura going back to da Vinci and medieval China and on the work of scientists who knew some chemicals reacted to light but didn't know how to preserve those changes. It was said daguerreotypes had, quote, realised a dream that had been dreamt for a long time, a way of making nature make images of itself, unquote. They were more of a nightmare for Henry Fox Talbot in England, who'd been working on a very different way of capturing images and rushed to make his discoveries known too. With me to discuss the invention of photography are Simon Schaffer, Professor of the History of Science at the University of Cambridge, Elizabeth Edwards, Emeritus Professor of Photographic History at De Montfort University, and Alison Morrison-Lowe, Research Associate at the National Museums Scotland. Simon Schaffer, much was known before Daguerre about light and lenses. So let's start with the idea of a camera. What's meant by that word? A camera, we think of a pinhole camera here, uh, is literally a room, say a box, with a tiny hole in it, point the tiny hole at an external object and on the back wall of the box a remarkably clear lucid precise image of the exterior can be formed if one puts a lens by the hole you can bring the image to a focus and with an arrangement of mirrors the image can be turned right side up that's an ancient technology it had been known for centuries Um, What was important, I think, about the very idea of the camera was that it was very widespread. It was used by people in drawing and artistry to capture an image that could then be drawn. In the early 1800s, a complementary technique was developed, the so-called camera lucida, patented by the great British chemist William Hyde Wollaston in 1807, in which one could use an arrangement of mirrors and lenses to achieve more or less the same effect. It seems to me that this was going on but not steaming ahead. It didn't have a role with it. I mentioned Leonardo da Vinci. I touched on medieval China. uh, David Hockney has written about Canaletto and so forth. But it didn't seem to gather any force in those early days. I think that's right. I think one of the morals of the story of the invention of photography, and it's a very apt moral right now, is how appropriate and important it is to have the movement of technique, of ideas and of people around Europe. That's crucial for the invention of photography because it was the convergence of a large number of different kinds of experimental tradition stretching from Sweden to Switzerland and from France to Britain that brought about and ph- photography. And Germany came yeah. in. Um, can, you, you, can you talk about Thomas Wedgwood in the late 18th century? Is Wedgwood that, is, is could fascinating. You say that, yeah. could, could we say that that's when it sort of got going in this country? Well, there were precedents... Uh, as as you've said, it was well known to many chemists that silver salts in particular respond in a very interesting way to light, though the mechanism was not very clearly understood. Thomas Wedgwood was the son of the great potter, Josiah Wedgwood. He was uh, 
clearly a brilliant young man. He was constantly ill. He was in a Bristol therapy centre taking drugs prescribed by Humphrey Davy and Thomas Beddoes. He worked extremely hard to see if it was possible to use the strange optically sensitive behaviour of silver salts by soaking leather initially with those salts and then exposing them to light. The clever trick was to put on the leather or some other surface an object, so this would be what we would call a contact image, and then the parts of the silver salt-soaked leather not exposed to light would make the shadow image of the object lying on the leather. The puzzle was... So in fact, you made a negative. In effect. Yeah. The puzzle, the crucial puzzle was how could one preserve this image? Now, there's a, there's a quandary about what Wedgwood did, which is there were clearly Wedgwood images that survived for decades, provided they were kept in the dark. And the publicity for Wedgwood's technique was very widespread in England and in Scotland and overseas. So perhaps not the beginning of photography, but clearly an absolutely crucial prompt for it. Alison and Morrison Lowe, who solved this? The problem is a fixing now, isn't it? Fixing, that's I mean, correct. Uh, who solved that problem of fixing well, these transient images? Um, there was a Frenchman called Nisifor Nieps who um, spent most of his life after he had um, retired to his estates. He was a lawyer earlier on. He, um, he experimented with his brother on trying to fix images and... He really didn't start... Well, he did. He started off with the Wedgwood um, process and he does appear to have fixed a couple of images which survive in France to this day. But then he took a, a, a different route. And like many other early pioneer photographers, he was interested in producing a method of uh, printing photographs, or at least that's how we'd understand it today. Um, the great dream, I think, was to produce images on pages with the text. And all sorts of people from Talbot onwards were striving for this. But uh, Nisifil Nieps similarly was striving for this. So his first successful photograph, the photograph we know done by a process called heliography, um, is on a pewter plate and it uses something called bitumen of Judea and it was washed with um, lavender oil. Um, this is not um, a really very successful technique for mass production, I have to say here. Um, and he managed, managed to capture um, a picture uh, in a camera obscura um, of the roofs of the houses outside his his um, house at his workshop at Grass. The, um, how did he move on from there? There is, let's 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 cut to the chase. Cut he met chase. up with Daguerre. He met up with Daguerre. Right. And Daguerre, then got on with it. And then and, and Daguerre um, Daguerre was a very different sort of person. He wasn't a scholarly retired scientist dabbling around with stuff. Although he was doing a lot of um, scientific experiments himself. He was a, an entrepreneur and a showman, and he ran um, a device called the diorama, which is rather similar to the panorama. The diorama, though, is uh, translucent uh, canvases where you project or project through 
um, paintings of oh, uh, foggy scenes, gothic ruins, um, you know, everything that was very romantic. And he was very keen to uh, capture images in the camera obscura. Again, it is this business of using the camera obscura to capture images. And so he teamed up with Niepce and um, then Niepce died. Has to be said, because it's important here, really, that the diorama was fantastically popular. Absolutely. And he built one here in Regent's Park. Constable went and declared himself to be amazed by it. So something big is going on. He's attracting crowds, and, and that is part of the story. It is. It is indeed, because Daguerre manages to do this in a very flamboyant way. He, he makes the breakthrough secretly. Uh, he practices um, again with silver um, silvered plates. He moves away from pewter and he moves on to silvered plates and he produces um, by 1838 this single one-off reversed uh, positive image which is metallic and very very fragile has to be protected by glass um, and he go he finds he can't get the backing for it that's that's the crucial thing so he goes to the um, Institute de Paris, the scientists, and um, he speaks to Arago, who is the director there. And Arago sees what he's doing and is thrilled to bits and then negotiates with the government to get them to buy it and pay him off with a pension. It's a brilliant, seriously, without a brilliant notion of state sponsorship. This one man in the French Assembly made a magnificent speech, said, this is the future, this is France's glory, give him a great big pension, which is what he really wanted, let us patent it and get on with it. It was a terrific uh, combination uh, of the state and an individual. Uh, Daguerre brought a lot together uh, and, and away he went. So we're on our way. What was the reaction of people, Elizabeth Edwards, who saw these daguerreotypes came in in 1839? We have one or two littered around the studio table. And so if you close your eyes, you'll see them better. Anyway, here we are. What was the reaction? <laughs> Complete astonishment. Wonderment. And they're beautiful photographs, to say to us, who haven't seen a daguerreotype recently. They're, they're obviously, they look at uh, their oval, they're in their beautifully figure. They look as if they've t been exposed for a long time. They're black and white, of course, um, but a few touches of colour here and there. They, they look like the person they're meant to look like. I'm holding one up of Edward Allan Poe. It's fantastic. You really see into his character. It must have been astonishing for people to see that. Right, that's me, you. It was astonishment and wonderment. People talked about the unimaginable precision. You could see every eyelash, every crease, um, every whisker, every hair. Um, there was some resistance to this in some quarters. You know, the, only only God should really um, have that um, control of precision over mankind, and this could be the work of the devil. But um, that was a minority view. Um, the view was absolute astonishment and enthusiasm. After Arago um, presents. Um, he describes the process. He doesn't demonstrate the process to the combined meetings of the uh, Academy of Fine Art and the Academy of Science in Paris in August 1839. The room is packed to overflowing. They even fill the courtyard to hear about this new discovery and new invention. It's astonishing, isn't it? They it's were so clued up to do that. Yeah. You would have thought it would happen in a back alley somewhere, wouldn't you, with three yeah. people around a Bunsen burner, but not yeah. like that at all. Not at all. No. And apparently, after this meeting... 
optical instrument makers and chemists in Paris were besieged by people who wanted to try out this new technology. I, I suspect they didn't get very far because it was incredibly complicated. Um, and very soon, the whole of Paris, if not the world, was overtaken by this mania for the daguerreotype. It offered so many possibilities. Um, it wasn't necessarily seen as an art form of any sort at that period. It was seen as a form of record. It was seen as the potential in portraiture, as we've just talked about. It was also seen as having potential in things like archaeology. In his speech, Arago actually talks about what what if we'd had this in 1798 when the Napoleon, uh, Napoleon's expedition to Egypt looked at the hieroglyphs? Um, so it, and also, it had, if you get all the information out to lots of people in precisely the same way at the same time, that was exactly, new as well. Exactly. And, and you, this they, was crucial. This was absolutely crucial in the further dissemination of photography more generally. And so by December 1839, Paris is gripped by a mania for the daguerreotype. And there's a wonderful cartoon, which is actually prescient. It shows how f f photography takes over the world. It shows th great throngs of people in the Paris streets fighting each other to have their photograph taken, to take photographs. There are cameras pointing in all directions. There's somebody in a balloon pointing a camera down. There are anxious mothers and harassed nursemaids trying to get children to sit still in front of the camera because, of course, it's a very long exposure. And then in the background, we have a, rail, uh, a railway train stuffed with photographic equipment, people barrowing um, photographic equipment onto steamships. And so we... In the microcosm, he's understood the integration of this incredible medium into the industrial modernity. And that's a very good description. And he goes, and he's a showman. He started off being show, and that's part of it. And it, it, it is terrific. Also, the French are onto it. That you know, when they're good, they're really good, aren't they? Yes. From the very beginning, he said, they said, okay, we're going to photograph all the monuments in France. Yes. We didn't do that, did we? But anyway, they did, uh, and they recorded them. This is so big, they went for it. It's wonderful the way they went for it. There's, yeah, you're going to say something else. Where you go? Well, I was just going to pick up on your point about you know, how the, this um, connection between the state and the individual development in France was very, very clear. And... Yes, there is state sponsorship of photography and its recording of ancient monuments, which starts in 1851, where people are commissioned, five photographers are sent to five regions of France to liaise with um, local antiquarian societies and so forth and record the cultural patrimony of France. And this is actually a photographic manifestation of something that happens much, much earlier. In the 1830s, France has a ministry of ancient monuments, effectively. It took us to the 1880s. Still, to we've do got the same our thing. own ancient monuments. We're not going to be put down by that. It's just the no, way no. they went about photographing <laughs> that I was talking about. Okay, yeah. Simon Jaffa. Um, Henry Fox Talbot hears of this, hears of Daguerre. He's in England. He's a gentleman, aristocrat, very, very clever man, and his estate doing all these experiments. He's been doing it a different way. He's shocked into activity. That's right. Um, Talbot was a Cambridge graduate, a landed gentleman of some wealth, though very often cash-strapped, fantastically well-connected, an MP with a very well-developed backstory, we might say. Um, his closest associate, whom I want to mention here, was the preeminent astronomer John Herschel, and it was working 
with Herschel in the early 1830s that began to draw Talbot's attention to photochemistry in general and the specific possibilities of capturing images on silver salts in particular. There's a story Talbot tells later on that while holidaying in Lake Como, one would, if one was an English holiday party, indulge in drawing. Talbot was rubbish at drawing and dreamt of the possibility of making the process automatic so that he wouldn't be shown up by the other people in his party. How is he different from Degas? He's enormously different. He's uh, not initially an entrepreneur, certainly but not a showman. The way, he did the, the way he added to the invention of photography is what I'm talking His about. chemical technology is completely different. Two things matter most in the contrast between what Talbot did and what Daguerre did. The first was that the Talbot processes that he developed with Herschel involved making a negative and then printing positives from that negative using the same processes as one had used to expose the photograph in the first place. Secondly, perhaps even more importantly, the substrate that Talbot used was paper, very fine paper, what he called salted paper, paper um, uh, dipped in very strong common salt solution and then some silver salt, silver chloride or silver nitrate. What that meant is that one could make in principle, an indefinitely large number of copies. Unlike a daguerreotype, which is a unique one-off positive, what Talbot was offering was the dream and in many ways the possibility of an indefinite number of copies. And that meant that photography might become a vastly diffused technique. And it was his that took... took precedent and gradually gained strength as time went on, but not at the start. There was not the excitement there was in France, there was not the rushing. Uh, um, he, he patented his process in England, he which did. in a way held it back, and it was expensive to do, although in the longer run it would overtake daguerreotype in popular... Uh, well, just as a way of doing stuff. But he didn't paint it in Scotland, and uh, enter Scotland. Well, yes, he, he had a, a, a scientific friend called David Brewster who was based um, at St Andrews University and they were in correspondence. Of course, the penny postage is another great way of sending your photographs through the post, um, which happens from this time onwards. And um, Talbot is, is sending letters to, to Brewster and explaining what his process is. And Brewster suggests to him, in fact, he says in so many words, don't, don't extend your, your patent to Scotland, it would be unprofitable. Um, and at that point, you had to take out patents in all three of the kingdoms, England, Scotland and Ireland, and it was vastly expensive and, and really very troublesome. So Talbot, on his friend's advice, didn't. And then I think was probably very annoyed to see how it was taken up by um, the famous partnership of Hill and Adamson. Um, now, Adamson was uh, a young engineer who ha was in not very good health in St Andrews and he learnt through um, Talbot's instructions how to take photographs along with a group of other um, academics and locals and then he decided to go to Edinburgh and set up professionally as a calotypist on Colton Hill. Calotypist? Calotypist. They, were, they were no beautiful picture. Another um, is a word, um, I think, um, provided by Brewster, who was very keen on Greek roots to um, new inventions. Um, other people call them Talbotypes, but um, it's certainly the, it's, it's the process that Talbot produced. So can you, can you be 
Can you tell us precisely how these two pushed it forward? I'm interested in forward movement. Forward movement. <laughs> um, they, they, um, they. Well, sadly, we don't know exactly what they did because Robert Adamson um, was quite young. Um, he 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 got together with um, an artist called David Octavius Hill, who was a bit of a ch- big cheese in the art world. He he was. Um, secretary to the Royal Scottish Academy and a landscape painter in his own right. Uh, Adamson essentially did the technology, the pointing of the camera, the preparing of the paper and so on. And Hill set up the pictures um, and grouped people into poses and worked out how to frame them and all that side of things. But he was also a very, um, I think, affable person and he got on very well with his sitters. Was there a sense of a bit of a boom in Scotland, not on a par with, but echoing the boom in Paris with Daguerre? Difficult, really, to say that. Um, I think because people were really quite critical of the calotype. The very nature of it being um, a paper process meant that it looked quite fibrous. Uh, And to our eyes, they look perfectly beautiful because, of course, we know Impressionism and we look with... Um, tutored eyes at the Hill and Adamsons and think how marvellous they look. They're rather blurry and mysterious looking. But I think the Victorians, in fact, preferred the the pin-sharp truthfulness of the daguerreotype. Elizabeth Edwards, in 1840s, it's now gathering steam uh, outside France and so on. Can you just give us some idea in this country? And as Simon pointed out at the beginning, we're in Sweden, we're in Switzerland, we're in Germany. It's all... Can you give us some picture of what's going on? It's only six, seven years after Degas come out with his first portrait. And I think we must remember that photography in the 1840s is still in a a very profoundly experimental stage. We mustn't see Daguerre or Talbot's processes as fixed processes. There's continual experimentation. And in, in Britain, that experimentation really exists in the amateur sphere. Um, gentlemen of science, a lot of the people who are experimenting with photography also have other interests in either optics or sometimes the subject matter of photography. For instance, a lot of them are members of the Society of Antiquaries as well. A lot of them are members of the Royal Society, the Linnaean Society, all these learned societies. And if you like, it's, it's a network of scientific interest in which photography develops in this country. Is it expensive to do? It's very expensive, so it tends to be the gentleman, occasionally lady, experiment. Um, They are publishing in journals like the Royal Society and increasingly there are discussions of photography in the kind of journals that class of person would have read, the Quarterly Review, the Athenaeum, Notes and Queries. When you describe very vividly what was happening in Paris, children in prams being told to sit still, folks from balloon shooting, rushing up and down the street. That suggests that there was a popular take-up and that suggests that it was more than a popular interest. It was, pop- it was accessible to more than you're giving us to understand it was in this country, England, as, we, as it happens. Yes, that's so. Um, because of the different uh, technologies involved, um, the early processes on the negative-positive processes, were much, uh, they were much less commercially orientated, for instance, 
Um, they were much more experimental. We have to remember that at this period, just just getting the image was the challenge. It wasn't about just making pictures that are that are nice to look at. That doesn't really become the major concern till round about the eighteen fifties, when the when the chemistry and and the optics are secure. Why was America in all this? America was also experimenting, but they took up the daguerreotype with much more enthusiasm than in this country. In this country, one of the reasons the daguerreotype was not taken up with such enthusiasm was that, um, I think it was in the mid-1840s, a wealthy coal merchant called Richard Beard bought a patent for the daguerreotype from Daguerre's agent. And he he then basically franchised, licensed the technology. Um, and he's very clever about this. He did it regionally. So there was a daguerreotype studio in in, in no, Bath. Right, he in controlled Chow. it. And he, and he controlled it, it. Made people pay a lot of money. and A thousand guineas. A lot of money. Yes. <laughs> Simon, Simon Shepherd, um, every aspect of photography, as we know, is slow and cumbersome. Uh, Frederick Scott Archer, a butcher's son, like Cardinal Wolseley, uh, speeded that up. Yes, Scott Archer is an extraordinary figure, Hertfordshire man, his father a bankrupt, um, trained first in uh, coin dealing, which drew his attention to the beauties of profiles. He became a sculptor, actually a, a sculpture of great virtue, I think, joined uh, the so-called Calotype Club, um, that's to say the Photographic Society, through the recommendation of his medical advisor, Hugh Diamond, uh, someone who ran a psychiatric asylum in Surrey. There's a lot of illness about all this, isn't there? It, well, all you have to do is to reflect for just a brief moment on the chemicals you need to make a photograph. You need iodine and mercury vapour. And what Scott Archer used was gun cotton, one of the least stable and most explosive substances he could find. And he was interested in gun cotton because, as Alison pointed out earlier, the trouble with paper prints is that they look rough, they look fibrous. Scott Archer was interested in making a smoother surface, so he introduces collodion, which is gun cotton, an explosive, dissolved in ether and alcohol. You spread it, genius moment for Scott Archer, on glass, you salt it, you add iodine salts, and it turns out you've accelerated the exposure time by times 30 or 40. It became portable. Scott Archer invented a collodion camera, which essentially made the whole of the darkroom portable. He, like his French opposite numbers, was absolutely fascinated by landscape, by ruins, by documenting English monuments. And, unlike Talbot, he was clearly not interested in income. He simply gave away the recipe for the collodion process and died a pauper. So just to speed this up a bit, what people were interested in at the start, these persons, as Simon has said, and up in Scotland, are recording the past, isn't it? Showing the, the, land, or the landscape or the monuments. Is that the main concern? Well, the, the, the trigger for Hill and Adamson, in fact, was a schism in the Church of Scotland, believe yeah. it or not. So there's 
um, a whole load of uh, images where groups of, of ministers in their presbyteries are gathered together. And it's group photographs to start with. And then Hill realises the potential of this and realises that they can photograph ancient monuments. Indeed, they're very keen on doing that. Then they go down to um, New Haven, which is a local fishing port, and they photograph the local fishwives. Uh, and it's, it's a really an attempt at social documentation well, well before these things were really thought of. And what, what are those photographs? Oh, you, you want to talk about this, right? Elizabeth, Elizabeth Edwards? I just wanted to come in there because I think it's really interesting, this idea of, of photographing um, monuments, because I think in many ways what is seen as a suitable subject for photography isn't just technologically determined, like monuments don't move very much, so they're useful things to photograph, but... It's a subject matter that is part of the aesthetic habitat of the experimental class. So if you look at um, Talbot's Pencil of Nature, 1844, it has photographs of classical sculpture. It has photographs of um, documents, the kind of things that people had antiquarian, scientific, um, archaeological interests would be interested in. And I think the the aesthetic, um, if you like, point of reference was in many ways the engraving. And that's why this particular group of experimenters was so interested in the calotype, because actually it looked what like what a picture should look like in their cultural experience. And the daguerreotype and Scott Archer's um, processes actually move away from that to a sort of nasty, sharp commercial precision. Did something? There's something called stereographs. Now, did that speed things up a bit? What did that, what did that bring to the table? In many ways, a stereo was the first... Um, what was it first of all? So well, first we all know what it's a pair of photographs taken by a twin lens camera where the lenses are placed about two and a half inches apart to, to emulate natural vision, the eyes. When you look at these pairs, which are mounted on little cards side by side, and if you look at them closely, you can see that they're not quite aligned. You put them in the viewer and they go 3D. Why it was that so important? Why, why did that have such an effect? Well, it was 19th century virtual reality. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it really enhanced the reality effect of photographs. Well, it's extraordinary. And, How did in our barber shop in Wickham, at Ronnie Graham's barber shop, he had one of them, and uh, you went out yeah. there to play with this thing. It was, they were fantastically... Uh, mm. I mean, you saw real 3D, didn't you? Yes, they're absolutely astonishing. And, and, and um, it actually affects the composition of photographs because you want a very strong diagonal line going in into the image that really enhances the 3D. But these really take off in the beginning of the 1850s. And a lot of the commercial photographers who become the great commercial topographic photographers like George Washington Wilson and Aberdeen were back in Scotland, they start as stereo photographers in the mass market. Alison, Alison Morrison, Lowe, you want to come in? Um, <coughs> yes, indeed they do. Um, but it's not it's not just Washington Wilson. It's it's also uh, people like Francis Frith and Francis Bedford, um, and um, oh, the chap who went up the Nile. Um, that was Frith, actually. I think. Sorry, got them confused. Um, yes, uh, when I was going to say when. Uh, people looked at uh, Hill and Adamson's images, they they compared them to Rembrandt's. It was very much um, a, 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 an engraving sort of uh, comparison that was coming out there. Simon, um, how readily did um, these people, the, the inventors, the developers, 
wanted to be how readily how readily was it used by science for their purposes and how much did it help some scientists in their purposes i think that's a really important question because science obviously gave an enormous amount to photography repaying the debt took a long time um, it looked as you see, if society is a series of gifts and debts indeed and, oh how very nice look at for example the puzzle of the daguerreotype it's a one off so it's extremely difficult to print from, yet what science wants is reproducible images that can be distributed reliably. So Fox Talbot comes into his own. Talbot's technique could, in principle, he argued, completely transform the sciences. Talbot was a very, very keen botanist. He got in touch with the head of Kew Gardens, uh, William Hooker, and said, why don't you use my process to record plants? And Hooker's answer, I think, tells you everything you need to know about the problem. Hooker says, this would be good for copying drawings of plants and no good for making an image of a plant that brings out what a botanist wants to know. The establishment rarely lets you down. Indeed. You're saying something. Oh, you're about to. I just want to respond to Simon's point because I think it's a really important one because um, f the thing about photography is that it always records more than the photographer intends. So what you put in front of the camera is what you get a trace of. And for certain forms of science, this just simply doesn't work. They couldn't control uh, the information enough. What? Sorry, Simon, quickly, because I want to go... Yeah, to I... There is one science where photography is completely transformative, astronomy. That's the science of Arago, that's the science of Herschel. From the word go, it was clear that photography would be crucial for astronomy. Daguerre himself, before the beginning of 1839, had already made an image of the moon, which is extraordinary. Think that these photos have quite long exposure time. So stuff that moves is bad news. <coughs> As the exposure times get quicker and quicker and quicker, astronomers find phot photography more and more important. And that would be a crucial area of scientific photography. Right the through the I'm sorry to interrupt you. That idea of movement takes us to you, Alison. It was, it was still, as Simon has indicated, a bit too early to capture movement, which painters could do. But painters are now beginning to be affected by photography, as I understand it. Can you give us a few sentences on that? Yes. Well, the first um, street scene taken by Daguerre, 1838, I'm talking here. Right, as Daguerre managed to cap capture somebody um, standing still in a Parisian street, having his shoes cleaned. So you can see you can see these two people, the two figures, but you can't see anything else. The horses, the passers-by, everybody else is just a blur, and the streets appear to be empty. And indeed, this goes on um, through. Um, uh, the, the, both processes, the daguerreotype and the calotype, during the 1850s, uh, 1840s, up until 1851 with the new um, Frederick Scott Archer collodion process. Now, um, a number of people, um, uh, Gustave Le Gray in um, France and um, George Washington Wilson in Aberdeen, were able to accelerate their processes by um, more more light and the way you actually compose the picture so that you could get street scenes and um, 
uh, waves on on the ocean. But we're not quite there yet. Elizabeth Edwards, what was the relationship between photography and art in the 19th century? Because you're moving into that. And photography as an art, because we're at the time of the Crimean War. We not only had this great event of being reported straight back because of all, all sorts of other developments, but for Fenton taking photographs there uh, and so on. So it's moving into something else. It's having an effect on painting. It's having an effect on literature. You, people start to write like as if they were photographs and so on and so forth. Can you say something about that? It has an immeasurable influence on on art and literature. Um, I think it's it uh, the existence of photography uh, establishes new ideas of realism, new standards of veracity in writing. So you get writers like Zola, for instance, in the eighteen fifties, who's writing with this almost photographic detail, and you find writers who are using photographs as metaphors. Um, there's a wonderful example in Anna Karenina, which is later it's eighteen seventy five, I think that um you know she comes back from a trip with Vronsky and she goes to the album to find a photograph of her son she can't get it out of the album so she prods the photograph of the son out of the album with a photograph of Vronsky what a symbolic moment it tells you everything um in painting um there's a, a symbiotic relationship from the very beginning. As we've already discussed, um, th- there is a very strong aesthetic quality in what it is to make a picture in photography. Um, but also, painters are beginning to collect photographs. They're beginning to use them as aid memoir. One thinks of people like Holman Hunt's um, paintings of Middle Eastern scenes. Um, they, he's using photographs from biblical tourism as aid memoir. And And um, also, the next thing that happens is, round about the 1860s, you get a second wave of amateurs. And what these second waves of amateurs do is actually they're they're interested in moving photography itself forward as an art form. You're talking about Cameron now. I'm talking about people like Cameron um, and Dodgson, um, Lewis Carroll. Mm. They, the new... The, the new debate about photography isn't one of, if you like, technical and processual um, um, stability, which it was in the early first wave experimentation. The second wave of amateurs are interested in positioning it as an art form. As an art form. Simon, um, let's, take, let's go back to chemistry mm. because it's accompanied this, this, this story uh, um, and it was intricate and essential and so on. So... Late 19th century advances in chemistry, what were they and how did they assist this process? What was, this deci- process, I mean. yes. what was <clears throat> decisive, uh, in my view, was the realisation, which is there early and then delivered on really much later, that the rays that affect silver salts overlap with and aren't the same as the rays the human eye sees. So photographic plates are far more sensitive at the blue and violet end than they are at the red end. That meant that there was always the possibility of capturing on a photographic plate marks of things we cannot see for two reasons. One is because photographic plates pick up radiation we can't see. Talbot had already anticipated that back in... 1844. And secondly, with long exposures, photographic plates could pick up images too faint for us to see. 
So both in the chemistry laboratory and in the astronomical observatory, photographic technique could completely change what counted as the detectable universe. And that then fed back into improved processes of photochemical um, capturing. You see, for example, from the 1880s onwards, the most exquisite attention by chemists, astronomers, indeed anti antiquarians, to ways in which you could make the plates more sensitive, more quickly, and work out how to see those invisible radiations. And that would bring about a revolution, both in photography and in science. Alison, we're getting towards the end now, but it's sort of enter Kodak, isn't it? Yes, it is. And what happens then? Um, everything goes further down the social scale, although it's not just Kodak. There are no, a but number it's a useful of other... shorthand. It is very sh useful shorthand. Um, the, but the real... Um, uh, so revolution... lots of people can get involved now and it's much cheaper. Not really until after 1900. Um, well, we can risk that. You're going to... Well, I don't know. 1900 is... Ooh, <laughs> no, getting... I'll cross that <laughs> I'll cross that stage. There are, there are other, other ways that people become um, in, engaged with photography, if you like. Um, for instance, there is a form of the wet collodion process called the tintype. And this was extraordinarily cheap, could be um, developed inside the camera um, and was used, for instance, um, uh, on beaches where... Uh, People could go on day trips um, after the bank holiday legislation in 1871 and they could bring away a picture of themselves for sixpence. And it's really feeding into what became, quite soon became mass photography. Absolutely. Working class people's ancestors were photographed in the early yes. 20th century and then the war came, photographed there, photographed, yes. photographed. Um, how, Elizabeth Edwards... Uh, do you think photography changed the way people in the late 19th, early 20th century uh, saw the world? I think photography changed everything. I think it's one of those communicative technologies of the 19th century which uh, intervene with space and time. Photography makes the past present the whole time. You can access whole narratives through photography. And I think we need to understand photography in relation to things like railways steamships, the telegraph. And um, basically, I think photography changed the world in that it changed how people saw the world around them, how they had access to knowledge, therefore how they thought about the world and therefore how they acted in the world. So I think it's one of the great transformative technologies. It also changed personal relations, being able to oh, carry yes. a photograph, being yes. able to look at a photograph, became part of movies, novels, life, yes. Yes. as an enrichment and yes. a source of sort of melancholy, happiness... Mm. Uh, all employed by these little mm. photographs. And I think it gave ordinary people an access to their own pasts. Well, thank you all very much indeed. Alison Morrison-Lowe, Elizabeth Edwards and Simon Schaffer. We'll take a break now. We're back on the 22nd of September, but I'm told you can keep in touch till then on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. Thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. We missed out women. Yes. I think that it's absolutely fascinating that a process which is so complicated, so long drawn out and so dangerous, if, if not in many cases fatal, is also implicated in what Victorian women not only became devoted to, but in many cases, we mentioned Julia Margaret Cameron, I would mention Anna Atkins. Cecilia Glacier. Cecilia Glacier. 
are extraordinarily in command of. I mean, Atkins is fantastic. Atkins makes, in the 1840s, essentially the, the first book with photos. Before Talbot, this is a book on British algae, unbelievably beautiful cyanotypes. Julia Margaret Cameron, who I think is the greatest photographer of the 19th century... Um, but a bit of bit of bit of head wagging going on on not, the lady to your left and the lady to your right. Uh, uh, yeah. Agrees. Has this extraordinary this deep silent disagreement. Has has this <laughs> mime disagreement. Has this extraordinary career in which she uses her acquaintance network as a source for her photography, but she also uses her photography to break out of what would otherwise be, I think, a rather confined life. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, I'm just not. Um, as bowled over by her photographs, perhaps, as I should be. Um, I find them a bit mannered, perhaps. And, you know, reading the descriptions of her unfortunate uh, nephews and nieces as, as to how, you know, they, they look miserable, and this is because they were, and because she was <laughs> a terrifying old battle axe who mm -hmm. shouted at but them. But all those early <laughs> photographs, I mean, they look very stern, don't they? I mean, I managed to... Not managed to collect. I hadn't done it. Uh, anyway, there are a few. We we weren't a photographic class really. I mean, my mother once got a camera and she took about three a year. Mm. And they're basically the camera. If you look at the shot, the shot is a Blackpool Tower, with a little dot in front of it. Who is me or me with a pal? Yeah. That's the photograph. But the real photograph is Blackpool Tower. Yes. Right. That's what. That's what we did. <laughs> well, I suppose this monument's going to think of it. Yeah. <laughs> I think also um, the other thing I think we did leave out was the, the scale of mass circulation. That the, the photographs just penetrate everything yeah. um, from 1860 onwards. Yes. There's not a single aspect of human mm -hmm. endeavour, even for things like philosophy. It changes how people think about realist philosophy and so Absolutely. forth. Absolutely. Um, you know, it just changes every single aspect of human activity. And you know, the point about everybody looking stern. Because I think, you know, ideas of naturalism... I, I, finished, I didn't finish my sentence, did I? Oh, sorry. No, no, that's fine, you've said it. They all look very, very stern and do, yeah. yeah. But I think people look stern because they're not... Naturalism isn't something that immediately is related to photography. It's something that doesn't actually come until the 1920s or 30s, the Leica revolution. Smile, when, smile. Smile take, for the camera. Yes. You, were, you know, you went to the studio to create a social icon. Right. And that's why these mm -hmm. photographs look mm -hmm. stern and proper, and everybody in their in their correct Sunday, dress, Sunday, Sunday best. best, absolutely. Yes. Also, going to the daguerreotype studio was not a cheap operation. It cost a guinea, uh, and a guinea translated into today's terms is three hundred pounds. You wow. didn't just drop in and have your photo taken. Mm -hmm. You thought about it very carefully. Yeah, but later on, we're talking about the early twentieth century. Now, I tempt you into the early twentieth century. Oh, I find that so difficult. <laughs> I know it is very difficult. But <laughs> modern life. <laughs> But I think that there is very interesting uh, sort of um, procedures for early working class access to photography. Factories had clubs and so forth. And you put a penny a, a week in to the photographic club. And when your number was up or it was a big thing like you got married or something, you know, you, you took your two and sixpence to the local studio that you'd saved up in the photography club and had your photograph taken. So... Uh, there were sort of collective ways of, of getting a photographic image. It's in many ways why school photographs from, from some working-class board schools in the 19th century are so fascinating because, of course, often it's the only photograph taken a, of a child and that's why everybody's faces have to show mm -hmm. in order because so, that's the only record of that child. Mm -hmm. 
But, and the things, talking about working class traces in photography, the things I find fascinating, the things that are coming out of the archives now, which are these records from jails mm. uh, where you, you have mug shots, and these date from the 1850, late 1850s onwards, with people's names, ages, and their crime. And the number. And the number, of course. Uh, But it's fascinating. We didn't have time to go into that. I do think the use of especially uh, wet plate, collodion technology in institutions of confinement must have been an extraordinary moment. We mentioned Hugh Diamond, uh, who was head of the Surrey Asylum, and one of the things he did, and it was taken in a very complicated way, was to basically photograph the faces of his inmates. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge debate about whether that was intrusive, mm-hmm. whether it was science. Could you learn from the physiognomy? Phenomenology was very yeah, yeah. prevalent. Mm-hmm. At the time. And I think when Elizabeth talks about the transformation in philosophy here, the whole of medicine changed. Yes. The whole of medicine changed because because of photography, not because, as in the William Hooker case, because all of a sudden you could capture something that was transient, but, but because you had vast arrays of data. So we say a lot now about big data, photographs of big data yeah. already in the 1860s. Um, anecdote, uh, the number of glass plates that, say, Greenwich Observatory accumulated in the second half of the 1800s is vast. Thousands and thousands and thousands of images, which are almost but not quite of the same thing. So that you have these wonderful data series of sunspots. Um, long, long before, actually, you, you quite have the mechanism for managing them. And I think there is that instability inside what photography could do. The faces of the mad, the image of stars, the images of remote sites and so on. Talking about stars, our producer's about to enter. (laughs) And making an offer you can't refuse. Stars very much eclipsed moon, I think. (laughs) Um, Who'd like to your coffee? There are more than 700 programmes to download and listen to for free from the In Our Time website, where you'll also find a reading list for this episode.